Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for uh, November 3rd, 2021. And uh, I just want to remind everybody about the ongoing paper shortage and it's leading to shipping delays for some books. And, you know, I talked about last week, Crossover 9 was on the rack at my local comic shop and so was Good Asian, but we didn't actually get the preview copies and we got them this week. And so everything is all up in the air right now with dates and craziness. And so I apologize if I talk about something this week that's not actually at your comic shop or if I'm talking about something this week that was at your comic shop last week, just trying to do the best we can uh, to talk about the books and in a timely fashion. And obviously it's not as big of a deal on our new comics Wednesday episode, because as you longtime listeners know, this is spoiler free. We're not going to get into too many of the actual plot points. Just going to talk about the books in general, uh, as opposed to our DC spotlight that runs on Tuesdays, where we get into specific story beats and motivations, and it's a little more spoilery. So if you are looking for the DC books for this week, go check out our episode from yesterday. Uh, Unfortunately, Rocky had a family obligation, so I flew solo on that, but still covered uh, all 13 books from DC out this week. Favorite book, Far and Away, Human Target, uh, absolutely spectacular. Uh, Give a shout out to the Milestone books as well, because those are also really good, Icon and Rocket and Static. So uh, if you haven't checked those out, definitely recommend all three of those books. So let's go ahead and dive into the books I'm going to talk about in this episode, starting with a book that was, you know, another one of those delays, probably because it's more of a, a hardcover and it's from Aftershock. It's a, it's an anthology. It was supposed to come out early, early October rather, uh, because it's somewhat of a horror book. It's called After Dark. There's four stories in there that are sort of uh, a horror bent and uh, it got delayed and it was supposed to come out, I think last week, the week, the Wednesday, right before Halloween. And that got delayed a further week. So it's really kind of too bad that it's coming out after Halloween. Cause it's a great, just a great example of a, what you can do with comics and horror and whatnot. So there's four stories. First one's called dust to dust written by Cullen Bunn with art by Cliff Richards. DC Alonzo does the colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Then the second one is called inheritance. Jim Starlin's the writer, Nicole Jelena is the artist dc alonzo on colors dave sharp on letters black-eyed kids sin of the parent by writer joe pruitt simon kradansky does the art and colors dave sharp on letters and then the last one is tales of mother f goose along came a spider from writer frank Thierry. joe eismas the artist matt herms on colors carlos mangual on letters so the first one is a pretty fun story i guess well maybe fun is not the right word but it's a good story by cullen bunn cullen's a great uh, horror writer, and it has to do with um, a man who's kind of searching for, I don't want to say his long lost wife, but, uh, you know, it has to do with um, our mortality, you know, and how as time changes and, and time goes by, you know, we don't live forever. And so it's about legacy and it's about remembering people who have gone uh, before us, left this earthly uh, realm and gone on to what some people think is bigger and better. Maybe it's uh, smaller and worse. I don't know, but it was a pretty fun story, relatively quick. Second is the black eyed kid story from Joe Pruitt. So black eyed kids is actually the f- first horror comic that I really read that 
showed me that I actually like horror comics because for the longest time I didn't really read much horror because I was like, eh, I'm just not a horror guy. I don't really like horror movies. I don't go in for Halloween. Not not because I think they're scary, but just because I think they're kind of dumb. <laughs> People do really, really dumb things in horror movies a lot of the time. And uh, since I have such a healthy respect for logic, I just have a hard time buying into that stuff. But because I was all in on Aftershock and what they were doing was impressing me so much, I read Black Eyed Kids by Joe Pruitt and I loved it. It was creepy and it was suspenseful and it made sense. And I didn't feel like people were making dumb decisions just for the sake of the story. Uh, but the other thing about it that I loved was the Simon Kurnansky art was just absolutely creepy and moody and gorgeous. Uh, so I'm glad that we're getting a Black Eyed Kid story in this. I, I hope it kind of foreshadows a return of Black Eyed Kids because I'd love to see that series come back. Um, but who knows? The third story, Jim Starlin, uh, Inheritance, is it's a pretty quick story. And it's if you know Jim, if you know his politics, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's kind of a post-apocalyptic story. And I can't really talk much more about that. It's relatively short. Um, and if I say much more, I'll spoil it. So uh, let me talk a little bit about the last one. Now there is a Tales uh, of Mother Goose comic or a Mother F Goose comic coming from Frank Terry and Joe Isma. So this kind of can give you a, a sense of what that comic's going to be like. And it's it's basically a world sort of like Fables or Once Upon a Time, that ABC show, where you know in the real world there are actual fairy tale kind of uh, you know the people you heard about in fairy tales, um, and it. it I think it's going to be real fun. Frank has a, a real great sense of humor. I think in his comic writing doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, and the art from Joe Eisenman is pretty solid. And, you know, long came a spider. So as you can imagine, has to do with, uh, with spiders and um, this detective who is actually little Miss Muffet, you know, from the nursery rhyme. Uh, Cause again, mother goose. So uh, I, I think, I think everybody should check this book out. It's pretty solid. And as I said, it, hopefully it'll lead into more Black Eyed Kids, but it's definitely leading to more uh, Mother F. Goose. So again, if you like this, Along Came a Spider, it's the Mother F. Goose series that's coming from Aftershocks can have a lot of the same feel. So yeah, it's a, it's a solid hardcover. Again, I do wish it came out before Halloween because it's definitely creepy. But, you know, it's a, we're only a couple of days past Halloween. It's fall. It's getting darker, you know, sooner and it's cold outside and we're getting to be cold outside. And, you know, it's still the right kind of weather to do uh, to read something like that. So check it out. Uh, OK, let me move on to the next book. This is the first image title. It's from Shadowline Productions, which is Jim Valentino's uh, kind of corner of image, which I don't, they don't put out as much stuff as they used to. You know, they were the, the studio that did Morning Glories. I'd love, you know, speaking of Joe Eisma, I'd love to see that come back. But with Nick Spencer over at uh, Substack, who knows? But anyway, uh, I, I typically tend to like the, the books that they do. And this one's called A Thing Called Truth. It's from Yolanda Zanfardino. She's the writer and the letterer. And she does the art on cover B. And then we have Elisa Romboli, who is the artist. And she does the art for cover A. And then there's a cover D and E by Mirka Andolfo. So Yolanda clearly is a, a very talented creator because not only is she writing, but she's also uh, drawing this thing. So um, it's, it's a real intriguing start, more questions than answers, 
but in a way it's kind of, I don't want to say frustrating. It made me a little angry. So it's basically about this, um, this woman who's a, a research uh, scientist. She's working for a big company. It seems like they're, uh, you know, kind of a multinational type corporation. And she's clearly dedicated throughout the course of the story. We learn that her research into these machines, whatever, we don't know what they are. They're just called machines, um, has sort of caused breakdowns in, in her life and in her relationship, um, her relationships because of her dedication to work and neglecting other parts of her life. And, you know, her apartment's kind of a mess and that sort of thing. So, you know, she's, she's really dedicated and it's it's all about her wanting to give back and, and quote unquote, save the world. Um, but just like we've seen before, I think most recently in the Mr. Uh, or the Miracle Molly rather um, comic from DC, you get in bed with these corporations and they own you and they can, they can do things that aren't ethical and you don't have a leg to stand on. So I'm not spoiling anything here because this is basically the solicit. Um, but yeah, you're, you're a doctor and you do all your research and you show up to work the next day and you've had a breakthrough and you're ready to, you know, type up the report and get ready for your presentation to, to present it. And you find out you've been fired and they're saying that your research was a dead end and they own it all and you're crazy. And what do you do? Right. It, it's so, it really is aggravating. It really like you feel for Dr. Mag, that's her name. Um, you just feel for her because she's, she clearly, you know, her heart's in the right place. Even if maybe she's made a mistake or two along the way, her heart's in the right place and she very much cares and she's been done dirty. I mean, there's no other way to put it, you know, and, you know, the soulless corporation and the, the unethical and immoral people that work there, you know, taking advantage of her and it's, and it's horrible. So we do meet one other character. Um, I won't say how, but her name is Dorian Wildfang. Uh, and I, th I guess we'll learn a lot more about her in, in the second issue. So I don't want to say any more about the story because, as I said, I don't want to spoil anything. But based on the fact that the story is called A Thing Called Truth, Hopefully, I mean, it seems like to me, and we don't know this for sure yet at this point, that Dorian's going to be helping Dr. Mag um, to get to the bottom, to get to the truth, to get to the bottom of things and uh, hopefully have that truth out there for everybody to see. So uh, I thought it was a great start. It, it surprised me. It's a, it's a number one from Image. So not that I read every number one from Image, but I don't know, something about it. Maybe it was the cover just pulled me in. I said, eh, let me let me go ahead and. Uh, and take a look at this one. And right from the first page, which is actually uh, an action scene, I was sucked in right away. And I thought it was done really, really well. I'm not familiar with either one of these creators, but I thought the art was a lot of fun. It's a little stylized, uh, brightly colored. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's almost maybe a Thelma, not that I've ever seen the movie, but it's two girls. They're in a car they're sort of running from something or running to something. So, you know, right away, your mind goes to Thelma Louise, at least mine does maybe because I'm of that certain generation where Thelma Louise was ubiquitous for a few years there. Um, but strong female characters with a very talented female creative team. So definitely give it a shot. And I'll also remind everybody that image is not doing any multiple print runs right now. So if you want to check it out, you don't want to miss out. You know, you might want to pick yourself up a copy. So uh, I enjoyed it. It's really good. All right. Uh, up next 
is uh, another Aftershock title. This is one I've talked about before. Uh, this is issue three of Campisi, The Dragon Incident. It's by James Patrick. It's the writer. Marco Locati does the art of the colors. Rachel Deering on letters. So this is a fun one in this world, Cyclops. This, this actually, uh, this issue is called The Cyclops. Uh, but in this world of Campisi, Cyclops exists, dragons exist, other kind of fanciful monsters exist. And there's this dragon that's shown up in this particular neighborhood in Brooklyn and he's out for revenge. Uh, for on, he wants to get revenge on the descendants of the people who kind of wiped out his um, his ancestors of, of dragons, his sort of uh, family of dragons. And he's going to destroy the whole neighborhood if if this descendant is not turned over. But the descendant descendant is connected with the mob, and they can't just turn him over. And it leads to all these sort of uh, hoops that people have to jump through, including the title character, Sonny Campisi, who's sort of a, a fixer or a gopher, a facilitator who works for the, one of the mob bosses of, of that neighborhood. And he, he fixes things, you know, he, he work when things, when there's problems, Sonny goes in and fixes things. So he's trying to jump through some hoops and try to please everybody, please the dragon, um, keep people safe. But uh, unfortunately, some of the other mobsters don't know what's best for them. You know, they, they don't know how to get out of their own way and they're not directly dealing with the dragon and maybe they don't see it as a big of a threat as it actually is. So it's causing some consternation for, uh, for Sonny. And in this issue, we, we see some consequences and some, ca some casualties of that. So it's a pretty fun story. I don't know that I'm enjoying it quite as much as I liked James Patrick's last story, which was a mashup of a, heist and kaiju giant monsters um this obviously is, is a mashup of kind of you know mobster and dragon fanciful dragon story it still works and i'm still really enjoying it um I, I think the difference is i just i'm not as big of a fan of mob stories as i am of heist stories and i'm not a, as big of a fan of dragon stories as i am of kaiju so I think it's still very, very good, and I do recommend it. The Marco Locati art is a bit frenetic, um, and it's stylized and, uh, and a bit simple. There's not a lot of detail, but I think it works well to give that sort of frenetic feel and pace to the story that, uh, that James is going for. So um, I, do think, I do think it works for sure. And a great cover as well, and you know, aftershock. So that's sometimes just saying aftershock is enough of an endorsement from me to, to tell you guys to go out and check it, uh, check it out, pick it up, what have you. Uh, all right, up next is crossover number nine. This is written by Donnie Cates. Jeff Shaw handles the art. D kind of on colors. John J Hill letters and design. Wow, is this book good? Um, you know, it started off and it was this idea of a giant summer comic crossover blockbuster event with all these different universes dc crossing over with marvel crossing over with image crossing over with all the different creator owned kind of power rangers transformers you name it right all of it bleeding through into the real world this huge uh, rip or, or rent or rift or whatever you want to call it in the skies over denver and all these characters supposedly fictional characters comic book characters coming through to the point where the powers of B put up a shield over, over Denver and, and tried to isolate 
and the rest of the world tried to to move on um while the battles rages on you know in, in perpetuity between these supposed comic book heroes and villains and characters and what have you and it's affected the world and we know that some of the comic book people have have come out have managed to make it out of the dome some are trying to go back there's real world people that are trying to get in there to rescue their loved ones who were trapped under the dome but but the world has tried to move on and and tried to continue living and and just stay away from denver but it's sort of in the back of everybody's mind and so the it's interesting the first arc is is moving the characters around and sort of setting up the world and and it very much felt like it was a lot of the world trying to ignore it and and move on while we were finding out that there was a bigger and bigger conspiracy going on and now with this issue nine i don't want to say the conspiracy is laid bare but what issue nine does as we follow the characters that we've met so far whether it be l or um, the two detectives from the powers series from brian michael bendis um you know no matter who it is that that we're following here what becomes apparent is that this thing's a lot bigger than you might might initially think you know first it was just kind of this this love letter to comics from jeff shaw and donny cates and uh a way to sort of think about the way in a little bit of a meta way, think about the way comics affect us, at least those of us that are big fans who've made comic books and comic book stories part of our lives, even to the point where somebody like myself, who's crossed the line and gone over into sort of the press realm, you become friends with these comic creators. And so not only do the heroes have a life of their own, but the, the creators do too. They're, they're real people. You know, you, you interact with them and it sort of colors your outlook on their work and whatnot for good or bad. Um, and as the story, as a series has gone on and Donnie Cates has pulled in some of those ideas of, of comic creators as real people, you know, we've heard Brian K. Vaughn was killed and, um, you know, Frank Miller showed up at one point. So it's, it's, it gets really meta. And then in this one, there's another big name comic creator who had been reported as missing, who shows up deceased and it's sort of brutal. Like you actually see him, laying there dead and it's like whoa in a way it's cool but in a way it's a little morbid you know what i mean um but what it what it's done what this issue has done like i said it didn't doesn't necessarily lay the conspiracy bare because we still don't know exactly who's behind it or why but it's expanded the scope and it's made it more personal and it's raised the stakes you know like as a reader even though it was meta and they were referencing real comic characters from other companies and, and the creators behind them, it still all felt sort of kind of esoteric and abstract. Um, and it's not like you read it now and it feels like you're reading nonfiction. I, I don't mean to say that at all, but if you know these people and you know their work, all of a sudden it, it feels like the stakes are, are higher. You know, this isn't just some, you know, a comic book called crossover that's celebrating a big crossover and celebrating a love of comics. There's actually other things going on behind it. That's sort of engendering this emotional reaction. Like when I saw this comic book character or comic book creator, uh, you know, on the page deceased, it, it affected me. I'm like, Whoa, you know, and then you can't help but think 
well, you, you would hate for that to, to really happen in real life. And then you realize that, you know, how these creators, you know, whether you've met them, consider them friends, know them personally or whatever. The fact of the matter is that if you bring their stories into your life, they in a way do become, you know, part of your life, whether it's through the stories that they're telling and, and what they put of themselves in the stories. Or like I said, if you get a chance to meet them uh, or talk to them or correspond with them on social media or, or whatever. And so, um, this is the first issue in a while that, that really has me excited. I mean, don't get me wrong. Crossover has been great all along. Uh, I thought the first couple issues were really good. And then it sort of settled into this above average, um, compelling read, uh, every month. But with this issue, with issue nine, Kate's, he shoots it back up, you know, him and, and Jeff Shaw, they, they really raised the bar and, and, you know, shoot this rocket way back up and it's, it's outstanding. It's so good. Um, this issue does tend to be a little bit dialogue heavy, but it works. Um, and it's necessary, you know, sometimes you say, ah, you know, Chris Claremont type of thing where there's just a, you know, kind of soap opera and just so many words on the page or, or a Bendis story. And like I said, there are a couple of characters from powers here and we get a little bit of that Bendis banter, but, it's meta in that way. Like it, it, it's even referred to like, you're not going to do that powers thing. Are you? And then they do the powers thing. Um, so part of the reason that there is so much dialogue is because this is uh, an issue that's sort of foundational that, you know, sets up the next stage, the next chapter, the next elevation of the story. So that maybe the next big reveal is, is who is actually behind it. Do we, are we finally going to see them and finally learn why? So while it is a little bit, expositional and dialogue heavy, the dialogue, the scripting is done very well. Um, it's really sharp and to the point. There's not a lot of extraneous dialogue, except when it's used to affect and it's supposed to be, you know, a back and forth kind of banter. Um, so I, I thought it was done really, really well. One of my favorite issues of the series so far. So if you're not reading crossover, definitely recommend picking up the first trade, getting caught up on some singles. Uh, all right. Up next is a Marvel book. It's called the Dark Hawk. This is issue number three. It's from Kyle Higgins. He's the writer. Juan and Ramirez does the art. Eric Arsenega on colors. Travis Lanham on letters. You know, when I read the first issue, so first off, I should say I, I never read a single issue of Dark Hawk from, from the 90s. Um, and so I wasn't necessarily planning on picking this up. But or reading it, but when I saw it was Kyle Higgins doing it, you know, big fan of Kyle. His work in my mind has just gotten better and better uh, as he's been in comics for 10, about 10 years now, maybe a little longer than that. Um, and so I, I read the first one and it didn't really resonate with me, but I, as I always say, got to give it at least a new series, at least a couple of issues. Second issue improved the third one. I'm, I'm hooked. I'm in <laughs> Kyle, Kyle sucked me in on this because what he does is he brings emotion to the story and he brings consequences and he brings weight. Um, and so basically this is about uh, a new person in new Darkhawk armor. We don't know where the armor amulet has come from. We don't know if it ties into the previous Darkhawk or not. What we do know is this guy, Connor, uh, was a high school basketball star, had the entire world in front of him, big scholarship, NBA draft on the horizon after probably only playing one year in college. And then he gets diagnosed with multiple sclerosis MS. 
and it affects him and it affects his father and it affects his whole family and his whole future. And he doesn't know if he's going to get to keep playing basketball. And so amongst all this going on, this upheaval in his life, he comes across the dark Hawk amulet and he finds out his best friend is into some shady stuff because he runs into his friend when he's out as dark Hawk trying to do some good. And the consequences of the choices his, his uh, friend has made is what, leads to the emotional weight of of this issue so again what i love about it is the realism and the emotion and you know not to get too cliche about it but but kyle higgins is is writing what he knows in a way you know he's he's taking a, a character that is sort of at that age the cusp of cusp of adulthood at that time when you have to make decisions and for Connor, that's, that's a new thing, right? Like it's not a new thing for most of us. You know, we're finishing up high school, getting to that. You have to decide, are you going to college? Where are you going to go to college? What do you want to do with your life? That sort of thing. Kyle takes it even one step further with the kind of consequences of the, the MS and Connor's life being thrown into disarray by the diagnosis of MS, by uh, what happens with his best friend by the fact that he's found this armor that gives him superpower, this amulet that gives him armor, that gives him superpowers. Everything is up in the air for this guy all of a sudden. And it's almost more impactful emotionally than it would be for if we were just reading about an everyday normal teenager who's, who's at this juncture of their life where they have to make these decisions because Connor had his whole life mapped out. So now he's had the rug pulled out from under him. So rather than starting from zero, he's, he's starting from the negative. He's got all these things stacked against him because uh, everything he thought he had is now up in the air. So it's, it's even worse than not knowing. Um, he thought he knew, and now who knows what might happen. So uh, I think Kyle Higgins does an incredible job of telling this story, which again, these aren't necessarily the most original ideas, you know, a, a person at this stage of their life trying to figure out what they're going to do. Um, but he does it so well and with such emotion and, uh, and good dialogue and, you know, the art from Juan and Ramirez is, is fantastic and emotional and just a, a, the tiniest bit, I don't know if it's in the color or in the line work, just the tiniest bit, dirty, like it almost like it has a, a bit of a, a filter over it um, that makes things dark at times. And so uh, it, it really suits the tone of the story that's being told. And we get a special guest star on the last page and we're told in the next issue, we're going to get even more guest stars, which that's very nineties, you know, right. The first couple of issues you you have, it used to be in the nineties, if you were, Uh, in a new comic guarantee you had these three people maybe even four show up in like the first five issues wolverine ghost rider spider-man if you had a new series those three people showed up and then the fourth one that would show up sometimes but not always would be the punisher so you know when i see these guest stars start popping up here uh i I sort of chuckle because it feels very nineties, but you know, dark Hawk is a nineties character. So uh, again, you don't need to know anything about the old nineties dark Hawk. I don't really know anything about him. 
Uh, and even if you've read the first issue and we're like, eh, I don't know if that's working for me, man, read this issue. And I, I think you'll be hooked because I think Kyle Higgins does a, a fantastic job. And, uh, and I actually do love the, the fact that these um, guest stars are going to show up because it helps ground the series and, and plant it firmly in, in the Marvel universe because of the, the guest stars, because of who they are. They're, you know, sort of classic Marvel characters. So uh don't know if Wolverine will show up at any point yet, but uh, yeah, it's a good series. Definitely check it out. Uh, okay, up next, another Marvel book. Don't have a whole lot to say about this one. Uh, we, we've talked previously about the first couple of issues of the Death of Doctor Strange. So we have a one-shot this week, Death of Doctor Strange, The Avengers. It's written by Alex Pacnadel. Ryan Bodenheim is the artist. Rochelle Rosenberg does the colors, and Corey Petit is on letters. Um we get a couple of references to the three mothers that we saw show up in the last issue, death of Dr. Strange, number two, Um, even though it says Avengers, it's not necessarily didn't necessarily feel like an Avengers book. We have Thor, we have Captain Marvel, we have Captain America and we have Iron Man. Captain America really doesn't do much. It's left to the other three. Um, But some, some little plot points are, are starting to fall in place and it's all amongst the background of or in the context of you know dr strange having died and the fact that the mystical barrier that he constantly maintained around earth has disappeared and so earth is being attacked on all fronts by all these different mythical beings that's that's always in the back of your mind it's brought up it's referred to several times uh, throughout the issue um while other things are are going on but everything is not quite what it seems what seems like it could be an attack may actually be something else. And so it definitely ties in strongly with what has happened up to this point in the death of Dr. Strange mini, but it still feels like its own thing. And then that doesn't mean I would necessarily recommend picking this up and reading it on its own without checking out the death of Dr. Strange series. But Dr. Strange doesn't show up in this either except in a flashback right at the the beginning so it's adding context to the story but at the same time i i don't know that it's 100 percent necessary it may be so, too soon to say um but what i will say is that from the steve scrose cover to the uh, interior art by ryan bodenheim with fantastic rochelle rosenberg colors the art in this one is great love it especially the the color work from from rochelle rosenberg she uses very, a very primary palette, a lot of red, and it really helps the story jump off the page. And it, it just works like a very, very well-colored uh, comic. So uh, if you are planning on getting the whole story when it comes to the death of Dr. Strange, probably going to want to pick that up, but I could see the, uh, the main series giving you enough context and explaining enough in those one shots that you don't necessarily have to pick them up. So I'll leave it up to you. Uh, okay, another image comic is up next. And I'm not going to talk real in depth on this one either because I sort of don't know what's going on. And that's sort of what I felt in the first issue. Uh, but, you know, always give it a couple issues. So it's some Frontiersman by Patrick Keimlin. The art is by Marco Ferrari. Colors by Jim Campbell. Um, and I've read stuff by Patrick Keimlin before, stuff from Aftershock by him. And I'm not saying this is a bad comic. I think technically it's well put together. I think the art by Marco Ferrari is, is really great. It's stylized. It's a little, 
it's a little almost pastel looking at times, a little watercoloring looking at times. Like I'd be curious to know if he's purposely changing up his style. There's one page that's almost like a montage where Frontiersman and this other guy called Galaxy are are battling. Um, but there's no panel borders. It just makes for a fun, really fun visual. Um, but the Frontiersman, he he sort of was from what I can gather, a member of, of this world or this universe's kind of version of the Avengers. And he's being pulled out of retirement to kind of send a message of environmentalism, which is sort of his thing, you know, he's the frontiersman. Uh, he doesn't necessarily want to do it, but he gets sort of talked into it. And we come to find out that maybe the reason he retired was because he had so many people arrayed against him. He has so many enemies, because uh, we do get some hints in this issue that there's some people that want to take them out, even though we don't really understand why. So way too many questions and not enough answers yet at this point. But Patrick Kylan is, is kind of, he's doled out some answers. Um, but what's interesting in the way he does it is everything we're learning about the frontiersmen and uh, the members of his uh, his superhero team, I guess you'd say it. Uh, I guess that's what you'd call it. Um, everything you, we've learned about them so far, you you've sort of learned in in the context of the conversation. Like nobody's coming right out and saying, you know, this was this and that was that. You sort of are getting it just from their conversations they're having, their interactions they're having with other people, and you're left to sort of pick up on it on your own, which. I mean, I guess it works. I don't know that it's it's the best way. Um, I mean, maybe you start thinking about doing some some back matter that will you know give you a little more context. Um, but I don't know. Uh, he's telling the story that the way he wants to tell it, and it's working so far. But I just I worry that some people aren't going to. They're not going to hang around long enough, basically. So I don't know. Maybe you need some flashbacks at an old superhero team. Travelers is what they were called. Uh, or maybe some back matters that gives a little more context. Um, that being said, I, I did enjoy the second issue a lot more than the first. The first felt like I was, you know, a lot of stuff was being thrown at me that didn't necessarily feel connected. I will say with the second issue and getting a little more background on the Frontiersman, it, it's kind of filling, th- filling things out. And, uh, and give you more context. So I think it works on that level. Uh, okay, up next, another uh, image comic. This is The Good Asian. We're up to issue number six, I believe. Uh, and this is from, yep, issue number six. This is from writer Pornsack Pichichote. We have art by Alex Stefegni. Uh, Lee Luffridge does colors, Jeff Powell on letters and design. Little bit of a down issue, uh, again, in terms of, of action and what's going on. We know that uh, Edison Hark is is in San Francisco. He's one of the first Chinese-American detectives in the U.S., but he's over in Hawaii. He comes back because his surrogate father's in a coma, and uh, he reconnects with his, I guess, his adopted sister and brother and is trying to find out what happened to his uh, 
adopted father's maid, who apparently his adopted father was in love with. So there's a bit of a mystery there. He has a foot in both worlds because he is a detective, but he's what they call Oriental, what we'd call Asian now. So he's kind of the bridge between those two, but and you can think of it as one of two ways. Oh, so somebody who's, who's that, you know, they're accepted by both. Well, no, actually he's accepted by neither because the other Asians see him as a sellout and, you know, working for the whites or the man or whatever you want to label it. Um, and so, you know, they don't trust him. And then from the, the point of view of the police department, San Francisco PD, they see him as an Asian, so they don't trust him either. Um, so it's, you know, it's set in the, the historical context of the, um, Chinese American Act, Chinese Exclusion Act, rather, where the immigration of Chinese were was banned from coming to the United States, like in the mid 1930s. Um, and through the course of the investigation, uh, some people have been killed, including last issue, his adopted brother Mason. And so now he's on the run. He's accused of that uh, that crime, and he's running out of places to turn, you know, like I said, he's not, he's already not trusted by the other Asians and he's not trusted by the police department. And now they've legitimately got something that they think he's responsible for, you know, maybe in a fit of jealousy or I don't, you know, who knows what excuse they'll use the police, but you know, fit of jealousy. Cause he, his, he never got what he felt he deserved. Edison, this is, so he killed his brother. I mean, who knows um, all while he's still trying to find Ivy Chen, still trying to, figure out what happened and, and, you know, what the mystery is and hoping his father will wake up from the coma and, and all this. So it's, it's a really great story with a lot of rich characters. The art from Alex Defegni is, is beautifully uh, accurate in terms of, you know, the time period, the 1930s, great color work from Lee Luffridge. So, um, you know, I've, I've said it from the beginning that this is a fantastic series. Um, and it really is telling a, a story that's inspired by the, the best sort of crime noir pulp novels uh, of the time period, but it does still have relevant themes for today about immigration and uh, prejudice and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, we had Pornsick on the show to talk about it before the first issue dropped, and um, it's been spectacular. It has uh, only gotten better over time. I remember getting ready for that interview with uh, – with uh, Mr. Peaches show getting to check out the first three issues and loving them. And the only drawback to that being, well, now I got to wait four months before I get a new issue. Um, I don't mind waiting because each issue has gotten better and better. And this, even though this one might not necessarily have, you know, the most action uh, and is a bit of a setup issue, I still think it's the best issue yet. And I said that after the last issue, when we got a bunch of background into uh, Edison Hark and his adopted family and, and learn things about their history that shed some light on the dynamics of those uh, family relationships. And now here we are with that context, understanding and learning more about the mystery and maybe who might be involved and why, even though we don't have all the answers yet. So Pornsack is definitely building to that uh, conclusion where we'll get all the answers or most of the answers like I said, perfectly uh, paying homage to those type of mystery, crime, noir, uh, pulp novels of the 1930s. So great book, 
don't sleep on it. Be sure you're reading uh, The Good Asian. Uh, okay, up next, it's the debut of another Aftershock series. It's called The Heathens. This is issue number one, The Right Bleep Holes for the Job. It's by Cullen Bunn and Heath Amodio. Amodio? A-M-O-D-I-O. Apologies if I butchered that, Heath. Uh, the art is by Sammy Cavella. Colors by Jason Wordy. Letters by Simon Bolin. So right away, you see Cullen Bunn's name. I think this is going to be horror. And in a way, it sort of is, but in a way, it's sort of action-adventure as well. And it's really, it's a really, really cool idea because it's kind of a mashup of, of some other ideas that maybe have been used before. So this idea of heathens, uh, what a heathen is, it's basically somebody, most of the time villainous, who's come back from the dead. Um, and they're not supposed to be back. And so there are other sort of ne'er-do-wells, I guess you'd say, who are recruited to go and stop those people that are coming back. So when somebody really nefarious and terrible comes back, in the, the, the person who's in charge of sending them back, who's also a historical figure, uh, doesn't just send one person, he sends a whole team. And I'm being super vague because I don't want to ruin the surprise, but it's cool and it's fun. And some of these historical figures aren't necessarily ones you would know. Uh, you know, I had to do a little Googling search and increase my knowledge, which I, was fun to do, actually. Um, and there's somebody on the cover, so I'll just go ahead and say who it is, uh, who was perhaps the most successful pirate of all time. And she happens to be female and she happens to be Chinese. And I didn't know anything about her, her history, didn't even know she existed. So that was fantastic. And she's sort of the, the leader of the group that gets put together to go take out this terrible, terrible uh, historical figure from the past. And then in the back, we get some back matter where we see that uh, who, who these previous heathens have been uh, that have been sent after others who've been resurrected. And so it's sort of like a, a hit list, if you will. And supposedly what these figures are told is if they go and take out 10 targets that they'll be returned to life in some way. Um, so, you know, you do with that what you will in terms of the knowledge. Um, the art, like I said, it's by Sammy Cavella. If that name sounds familiar, he did the, the Eden books that were so fantastic recently from Aftershock. Uh, his art is well suited here. Color work is also done very, very well. A, a real wide variety and diversity in the color. Um, from Jason Wordy. A lot of blues and browns and grays, as you'd expect if this is a book, you know, about the afterlife, but in the action scenes, there's plenty of blood. So there's plenty of red. There's some supernatural fire, which is green. Um, so yeah, the, the coloring is uh, in terms of the, the palette, it's all over the place and it really works. Um, I didn't know what to think about this book. Uh, I was sort of intrigued by the concept. Uh, Cullen Bunn's a pretty good writer, but I do have to say that it exceeded my expectations. I thought it was done really, really well. So if you want to jump on an Aftershock book, you know, we're always talking about how great Aftershock books are. So you want to see what the heck we're talking about and get a chance to jump on a series right from the start. I think Heathens is a good one to jump onto. So, uh, all right, up next, we have another image book. It's The Me You Love in the Dark. This is the next to last issue. It's issue number four. It's from uh, Scotty Young as the writer. 
The art is by Jorge Corona. Jean-Francois Bellou does the colors. Letters are by Nate Picos of Blambot. Uh, you know, I've talked at length about this book in terms of the coloring and how different it is from uh, Middle West, which is the previous book that this exact same creative team did. Uh, and I've talked about what a great job Nate, Nate Picos has done using a different palette, darker palette, more blues and blacks and dark browns, because it's much more of a horror story as opposed to kind of the fantasy adventure story that, uh, that Middle West was. And, it, and it's fantastic. I think the, the art by Jorge Corona, he's, he's getting even better in terms of his uh, sequential storytelling, in terms of the emotion he brings to the art, um, the artistic choices he's making of what to put in the panel and, and what to leave out, kind of less is more. Not to say he's not detailed because he's just as detailed as, as ever. But man, I feel like just throughout the course of these first four issues of the series that Jorge Corona has, has grown. You know, and I was just talking about his artwork on yesterday's episode for Batgirls, where I didn't necessarily care for it, um, not because I think it's bad artwork, but just because I feel like these are the kind of stories that Jorge Corona should be drawing. I don't know that his style lends itself to, to superhero stories, at least not for my taste, um, but this is exactly the type of story he should be telling, something that's creepy and has an undercurrent of fear, uh, an undercurrent of, of violence. Um, there's an uncomfortableness to the story that Scotty Young is giving us here. You know, it's, if you're not familiar at all, just real quick, it's about an artist who she just was the, your typical starving artist, you know, never thought she would be anything was painting for her love of painting for, for the actual art, not to become successful or make a ton of money, but she does capture lightning in a bottle and she does, um, sell some paintings and, and become super well-known and, and rich. And then all of a sudden, now the added pressure of sort of following that work is on her and she, she can't paint. She sort of has the painter's version of writer's block, I guess you'd say. And so she goes traveling around trying to find a place to, to inspire her to do her next, you know, big chunk of work. And she ends up in this house that's haunted or possessed or some kind of something. And she ends up, sort of becoming involved with whatever spirit or ghost or presence or whatever it is that's inside this house. And in a lot of ways, while that is scary and spooky and frightening, it, this story is also a, a metaphor in my mind of losing yourself by allowing yourself to be subsumed in a, in a relationship or in a, a, a situation or a dynamic where, you know, she's a little bit lost here. Roe is uh, the artist. And uh, when we first meet her and, and, you know, like I said, she's, she sort of had to change how she sees herself because she always saw herself as maybe a little less than others. You know, she's a little down on herself. She doesn't have the most confidence a um, little self-deprecating and all of a sudden, you know, she becomes this darling of the art world and it's not who she thought she was. And she's, I think a little lost, not just in terms of being able to create more art, but in terms of, of knowing who she is. And so she moves into this house and all of a sudden there's this spirit or whatever it is that's there um, that is, is focused on her. And I think she Ro makes the same mistakes. A lot of us, would make right where she throws herself into this relationship or whatever you want to call it with this spirit. 
um, because she is getting attention. She's getting something that, that she needed. She, in a way she's getting validation, uh, even if it is from some ghost or what have you. I think a lot of us would, would fall into that, but then the danger is taking it too far. And that's, I feel like what we really see in this issue from Scotty Young, um, that when you do that, there's the danger of, of taking things too far. Uh, if you, if you're getting your, your validation, if you're getting your identity from something external rather than internal, it can lead to a lot of problems because what happens if whatever that external force that is giving you or your identity is, is taken away or isn't what you thought it was or becomes abusive or changes, um, then you're back where you started. You're, you're worse off than when you started uh, because now you've sort of been lifted up from where you were with your self-doubt in the beginning. Uh, and then you're just dropped all the way back down to the bottom. And there's the, the chance of falling even lower. So uh, I thought this was a really, really well done uh, next to last issue because it sets up so perfectly what you're sort of expecting to happen, you know, things that are hinted at in the first three issues. Well, issue one is more set up. So what was hinted at in issue two and three, and then it, you know, it's kind of your worst fears are realized. Um, Cause I think I even said it when I was talking about issue three, like be careful what you wish for. It seems like it might be a good thing, but you know, Rose not stopping to think about what she's doing here. And now sure enough in issue four, things are not going well at all. Things have, definitely taken a turn. So I'm very curious to see how it all is going to tie up in, in issue number five. So another great series from Image and from Scotty Young. Definitely recommend you checking it out. Uh, okay, another Image series is up next. This one's, I would say, pretty highly anticipated. For, had a lot of people talking about it on social media and whatnot. It's from writer Chip Sadarsky. Jacob Phillips handles the art. It's called uh, Newburn. There's also a backup story called Bricklin Zirconia. Part one from writer Nadia Shamas. The art is by Zayed Yusuf Ayoub, and letters are by Frank Vitkovic. Um, I'm really going to talk about the backup because not, in my mind, not enough is there in the backup to really talk about anything. I didn't, uh, maybe I need to read it again. Uh, basically, this guy sees a or reads about a, a bank robbery in the newspaper and recognizes one of the bank robbers as his long lost brother. And that, that's, that's it. <laughs> so I, I did spoil that one for you. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, in the main story, which is really, really fun. The whole idea of who newborn is uh, newborn is this, um, this detective. He used to be a, uh, on the New York police department. He used to be a detective for them. Now he works for like all the crime families he describes himself as sort of um, like a UN peacekeeper in a way, right? Like the UN peacekeepers are sanctioned by all the world's governments, or at least all the governments that are part of the UN. Well, this guy is sanctioned to operate and investigate crimes that involve kind of the murders of, of other mobsters. Um, and he's, he, he's even accepted by the NYPD. Uh, and, and we find out the reasons for that in this issue, but I just find it that to be just a, a it's a fascinating concept from from Chip Zdarsky. Um and this guy's clearly capable and clearly has a lot of clout and 
I don't know. I just, he, he's somebody who you just immediately want to root for, you know, like you want to, to see what he's going to do. You want to see the way that his, his mind works and see the way that um, he figures things out, the way things kind of fall in place. And so uh, I thought this was a great start. Uh, we see what he, he does and, and the ability that he has to sort of uh, to be that, that neutral guy, that, that Switzerland guy, if you will. Um, and he doesn't kind of take any guff either. So that's pretty, that's pretty fun as well. Uh, and I, I'm not familiar with Jacob Phillips. I mean, I know he's Sean Phillips' son, but I'm not familiar with his uh, actual work. But uh, I think he does a good job here uh, in the artwork. It's somewhat simple art. There's not a, a whole heck of a lot of um, detail to it, especially in the backgrounds. But I think it works pretty well for the story that he's, uh, that he's trying to tell. So I think it, it works. Um, and yeah, just this idea of, you know, him as a, a UN peacekeeper. I think he actually calls himself a UN inspector at one point, um, kind of wandering through the, you know, the war zone and getting the answers that, that everybody needs. So fantastic start, uh, sort of a one and done story to begin with here, um, to introduce us to Newburn and some of the other characters. So very curious to see where it goes. Interesting start from Zdarsky. Uh, you know, typically a Zdarsky book, I expect a lot of emotion. And Newburn seems very stoic. He seems like he's not going to show a lot of uh, emotion in a way. So I guess we'll see. I, and maybe that's just set up for when we do get the emotion later on and find out more about the background of, of Newburn. Um, but I don't know, it, it has a little bit of a police procedural feel as well. So uh, definitely enjoyed it. Uh, okay, up next is another Aftershock book. This is the conclusion of a, a recent Aftershock series. It's Out of Body number five, The Unquiet Grave from writer Peter Milligan. Anaka Miranda is the artist. Eva De La Cruz does the color. Sal Cipriano on letters. Basically a story of a guy who was attacked outside a bar and goes into a coma and his astral self is out there trying to find out why he was attacked because um, he thinks maybe if he finds out why he'll be able to heal things don't exactly go that way in this issue he you know in previous issues in first issue he met uh, a medium who he's able to, to talk to a psychic who's able to see uh, the newly deceased so we get all the answers that we're looking for in terms of him trying to solve his own attack but they're not necessarily the answers that you expect this is this doesn't this um, this ending here doesn't wrap everything up in a nice, neat bow. In fact, it sort of make things, makes things even more messy. But in that way, it feels very much like real life. Um, and, it, and it leaves the door open for Peter Milligan to tell more stories with this, uh, with this character. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed this more than I, I necessarily thought I would. Um, because Dan Collins, the, the you know the guy that was in the coma, he's not exactly likable, um, and that's the other thing that this um, series sort of focused on and did really well was 
made us as readers kind of step back and think about the way other people see us, because that's what Dan had to do, you know, as he's going around trying to figure out what happened to him and he's entering people's bodies and, and looking through their memories, he's seeing the way that other people saw him. He's seeing himself through their eyes, colored by their perceptions of him and realizes that he, you know, he was a little bit more of a D bag than he thought, you know, he's a little more arrogant, a little more, uh, callous and uncaring and wasn't empathetic enough. And so as, as a reader, as you're seeing this unfold in front of you, you can't help but kind of reflect and think, man, maybe I can do better in, in my own life. So that's sort of the, the subtext and the, the themes that it's talking about in terms of the story itself. Um, again, I'm not going to spoil, but it all gets resolved, but it's not necessarily neat. It's not necessarily a happy ending. Uh, but it, like I said, it does leave the uh, the story open for more stories of Dan Collins and, uh, and Abby, who's the, the psychic that was able to, to see him. So I uh, thought it was pretty solid, you know, just another example of Aftershock giving us a, a pretty good book. So it's a final issue. Um, if you want to wait for the trade, I, I wouldn't say that's a terrible idea, uh, but, but yeah, definitely worth your time. Uh, okay, up next, we have another image book. This is Primordial number two. This is from writer Jeff Lemire. Andrea Sorrentino is the artist. Dave Stewart on colors. Steve Wands on letters. And this is basically the story of what happened to all those animals that we shot off into space early on in the space race that never came back and caused this version of the world, the Earth, to stop their space programs, to stop space exploration. Uh, there's not actually a lot that happens in this issue because uh, we get a ton of pages where there's no dialogue at all uh, because we're seeing Laka, who is a dog that was sent up into space uh, by Russian scientists, by the Russian space program. We get a lot of background with, with Laka. Um, so there's not a lot of dialogue. I mean, it's a dog. And then we see um, a little bit of the, the scientists that we met in the first issue who has agreed to dismantle the space program. He thought he was going to join the United Space uh, Space Program. And then it turns out he's actually being asked to dismantle it. Then he gets recruited by some shadowy figures and is taken somewhere. To, and we learn why he's taken, we learn where he's taken and why he's taken there. And that's going to greatly affect the story going forward based on the choices he makes and what they're trying to do. And it'll probably start giving us more context. Um, and it's not that this is a bad issue, but man, it was a quick read because there's so little dialogue in, in the series. So, you know, I don't feel like we have enough context yet for me to, to have an issue that goes this slow. Uh, you know, I've talked about it in the past where, you know, you need the slower issues. So you have the contrast between the more fast paced issues where all the action happens. But being that we, and we did get a pretty good chunk of story in issue one, um, but being this early to have an issue this slow is a little, little disappointing. I mean, I'm, I'm still very much intrigued. I want to know what's going on. The Adrian Sorotito art is fantastic as always, you know, just like the, Gideon Falls pages he did where things get really esoteric and, and sort of abstract. He plays that to perfect effect here. But again, 
maybe it's just a function of how great the story is and how compelling and how much I'm pulled in and want answers that I'm, uh, you know, again, I'm not complaining, but I'm just a little disappointed that it wasn't a bigger chunk of story. Um, Cause again, it's just a lot of, a lot of pictures, which add context and emotion, but you know, we're not moving the story along at a very fast pace. So holding out judgment on promo, I'm sure it's going to be good based on, how fantastic Gideon Falls was. Um, but yeah, I just, I just need more of the issues kind of in hand before I can be like, oh, yeah, okay. I understand what's going on. Uh, okay. Up next, another image book. This is issue nine of Radiant Black, one of my favorite books that's coming out. It's from Kyle Higgins, a writer I already, already talked about, super talented. We have Eduardo Ferragato on the art, Marcelo Costa on the colors, Becca Carey on letters, Rich Bloom did the logo design. Michael Basudel is the editor and designer. This is an emotional, really emotional issue. Probably the most emotional since we saw Nate get attacked and go into the coma and Marshall um, become the wielder of the Radiant. So this is a very Marshall-focused issue. And, and you know, obviously, Marshall's been the main character since Nathan's been taken off the, the stage, so to speak. But when I say Marshall, I mean, he's not really in the Radiant Black armor very much. This is more about who Marshall is as a person and the consequences and the feelings that he's dealing with since he got the Radiant Black uh, armor and Nathan has been in this coma. So the issue actually covers a, a really big chunk of time as we see Marshall dealing with what's happened to, to Nate Um you know, over a period of, of weeks, if not longer. Um, and so, I mean, you look at the cover, it's this beautiful white cover with Marshall walking away from the, the viewer and Nate is walking away right next to him with his arm uh, on, on Marshall's shoulder. And it very much looks like, you know, Nate might be saying goodbye. So right away, just from that, you sort of figure, figure it's going to be emotional and it does, it gets emotional at times. And uh, I think this, this is a great issue. It was exactly what was needed for this series at this time. We've had so much action and reveals with the different radiants of different colors that we've seen in the last couple issues and the dynamics between the different radiants and Marshall trying to come to terms with what happened to Nate and get along with these new people, some of whom he doesn't trust at all. So Marshall's life has sort of been turned upside down. It's very chaotic right now. And, and this issue giving us a glimpse into what Marshall's day-to-day -day is like, what his work is like, what, you know, as, as he goes to visit Nate in the hospital, um, all of that is, is here. And, you know, just like I was talking about with the Darkhawk book, uh, Kyle Higgins is injecting or uh, crafting is maybe a better word, crafting a narrative that's inherently emotional, which, you know, any of us who've lived long enough to have unfortunately lost people in our lives can relate to, especially, when you feel guilty about that, uh, that, you know, why are you still there and they aren't um, and, you know, feeling powerless to be able to make a change for them. Uh, it, I mean, it's just fantastic. And just like with Dark Hawk, the, the scripting is fantastic. This, it, this has a lot more humor in it. Marshall has, you know, he's sort of a, a screw up, a goof up, uh, you know, he likes to crack jokes and a bit of a smart ass. And so Kyle gets that, that narrative down, uh, gets that scripting down for Marshall's voice very, very well. So 
Radiant Black, one of the best superhero comics out there right now, without question. If you're a fan of things like Invincible, early Miles Morales Spider-Man, definitely would recommend picking this up. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. And just a reminder, everybody, if you didn't know or didn't hear, weren't aware, issue 10 is like this black light variant where it's basically printed in uh, like fluorescent colors that'll reveal or, or glow under a black light. So you definitely want to read this because it has a little bit of a cliffhanger ending that's going to lead into that black light issue. So, uh, okay. Up next is the silver coin. We're up to issue number six. This is the, the anthology series about a cursed coin that's out for revenge on everybody, pretty much on, on humans in general for humans being so despicable and um, persecuting people uh, as, as witches when they were just trying to help. Basically we got that uh, sort of origin of the silver coin in, in issue five. So this is issue six. It's sort of Michael Walsh's baby. He's the one that, that created it. Um, although Michael Walsh, Ed Brisson, Jeff Lemire, Kelly Thompson, and Chip Zdarsky are all credited as creators. Michael Walsh is the sort of the glue that holds it all together because he does the line work and the colors and letters for every issue. And then their, their issue is written by whatever particular uh, writer comes in to write that particular cool. issue. And in this particular case, it's Joshua Williamson. So it's, uh, it's called High Score, and it's basically about this kid who uses the uh, cursed coin to play a video game. Uh, in, in kind of a bowling alley type or, or arcade or mall or something like that. And things go about as you would expect. They go horribly. So uh, it's a little bit of a, a shorter story, but I think Joshua Williamson is um, a good writer to tell this story because Joshua Williamson has done several series. Uh, Birthright's one that comes to mind immediately about kids of this certain age, like, you know, right around 11, 12, 13 um, and so I think he does a good job of, um, of making it feel authentic of, of giving this kid, uh, a voice, although maybe voice is the wrong word because he doesn't actually talk a lot, but the, the portrayal, the character acting, uh, what this kid does, his actions and his choices and his decisions, uh, feel all very much authentic and, and realistic to what a kid of that age would do. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a horror book. You can, they're run one and done stories, although the coin, you know, is the theme that ties them all together. Um, so it's pretty solid. And Michael Walsh's art is he gets to cut loose in this series, the silver coin series. There's plenty of blood and guts and scary images. And yeah, and this is no exception. This may have some of the, <laughs> the most gory images of any of the silver coin issues so far. So uh, I definitely enjoyed this issue. One of my one of my favorite issues of of Silver Coin so far. Uh, okay, up next uh, again, real briefly, I'm going to talk about this book. It's Harbinger Number One or The Harbinger Number One from Valiant. It's written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Robbie Rodriguez handles the art. Rico Renzi on colors. Hassan Atzman Elhow on letters. It, it's just it's kind of tough, you know. I don't want to point fingers at anybody or say Valiant's completely lost their way, but their books just, they don't feel anything like what Valiant felt like when it first came back, um, in, you know, in 2012. And, and those books were so high quality. I mean, still to this day, if people are wanting to get into comics and asking for a great self-contained run that they can read, I will give them the first 25 issues of the Harbinger series by Joshua Dysart. That's, it's so good. 
it, it, it's an example of what comics can do. Um, this, you can't jump in cold. Uh, I mean, I think you can, but you'll feel like you're missing something uh, because it definitely pulls from other things that have come before in the Valiant universe. Um, and you sort of have to have read everything, which I guess maybe won't be that big of a, a stretch for most people that read Valiant these days. Um, but I don't know. It just, it felt, it just felt like something was missing. It, it's, it feels like it's missing that charm, that extra something special that, that made Valiant work. Um, I just don't know how much longer they're going to be around. I don't, I don't even know anybody who reads any Valiant stuff anymore. It just doesn't have the quality that it had previously. All that being said, I think that Kelly and Lansing tell uh, an interesting enough or compelling enough story here. And it is great to see Pete Stanchek back. I uh, see was such a big part of Valiant, both in the 90s and uh, the 2012 relaunch. Um, but unfortunately, the Robbie Rodriguez art doesn't do it any favors. Uh, not a big fan of, of Robbie's art in general, but this is even looser uh, than his usual style. And it ends up being really messy. And the, the choices in colors by Rico Renzi don't do it any favors. There's a lot of pinks, like bright pinks and bright greens and weird blues. And nothing is colored traditionally. And, and you know, at one point, everything has like a yellow filter on it. I, I just, I don't understand the artistic choices here at all. Um, so, I, again... Going to give it two issues, see what happens in issue two. It is Pete Stanchek. There are a couple of interesting ideas here. Um, but man, this art is tough. This art is tough. And it, it just, I can't help but compare it back to previous, um, you know, previous iterations. And they were just better. So, uh, okay, moving on to the last book I'm going to talk about in detail. It's from Marvel. It's Winter Guard number three. It's from writer Ryan Caddy. Uh, art is by John Jan Basildua. We've got Frederico Blee with Fernando Fuentes of Proto Bunker as the color artist, and then uh, Ariana Mare on letters. Last we saw, the Winter Guard was hunting Red Guardian and Elena Belova, uh, and we saw them meet up with Vlad Tepes or Dracula. Um, and in, in this issue, we sort of get everything laid out for us in terms of why are the winter guard going after red guardian and, and white widow, what are red guardian and white widows uh, motivations and what the heck does Dracula have to do with any of this? It all gets explained in this issue. It, it gives context to the previous. I, I sort of feel like after reading this third issue, I should go back and read the first issue, two issues again, cause I'll get more out of them. Um, but it's not hundred percent necessary. And I would even argue you could pick up this issue issue three as the first one, if you haven't read one and two and be able to get up to speed. So uh, I've talked before about not knowing a heck of a lot about these various Soviet character, or I guess I should say Russian characters now. Um, but again, Ryan Caddy gives you everything you need here. You don't necessarily need to know a lot uh, about them, but I did also mention previously, I feel like this Winter Guard book exists because the Black Widow movie came out recently, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about these characters, but I never will unless I get some stories that actually have them in it. And so I do uh, appreciate what's going on. A uh, bit of a, I don't want to say a, a shocking ending here, but 
um, for White Widow, the rug sort of gets pulled out from under her a little bit. So curious to see what's going to go down with her. Curious to see uh, the answers to a few of the little sort of mysteries that are going on. We, we got a lot of answers this issue, but there's still a few more questions out there. Who's the Red Widow? What exactly is um, Red Guardian's uh, endgame? And why does Dracula make the choices that he does? And could we see a lot more of Dracula coming up? It seems like he's setting himself up, um, him and the other vampires, to have a more active role in the Marvel Universe. So could this be foreshadowing something with him? I guess remains to be seen. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I checked it out because it was Ryan. And I, I know Ryan. I know he's talented. So I read the first issue and I, I felt a little lost but wanted to give it a second one, second issue improved. So I went ahead and read the third and now, now I'm hooked. Like I said, I want to go back and read the first couple of issues because this issue three was, was really fantastic and uh, very well scripted, very well paced and loved kind of the, the flashback recap that, that Ryan gave us little dialogue heavy with the expositional boxes, but it's kind of necessary and it, and it worked. And uh, Jan Basildu's art is fantastic as well. Um, I think the color work muted palettes as you, as you sort of need when it's a, a story with Dracula in it and the story of these Russian agents sort of infighting, you know, you think of Russia and you think cold and gloomy and whatnot overcast. And so you wouldn't want too many colors to pop off the page. Although I will say there's plenty of red uh, that's pretty bright, but again, it's Russia. You expect there to be red. So it works pretty well on that level. Uh, all right. Well, let me give uh, some other titles. Let me give a rundown of some other titles you might want to be on the lookout for. Uh, we talked about all the books from Aftershock. Over at AWA, we have uh, a new series that is debuting. It's called Knighted. It's a five-issue limited series. And uh, Greg Hurwitz is the writer. Mark Teixeira does the, uh, does the line work. So if you're curious, and it does have like um, an homage cover from... Uh, the Dark Knight Returns, which is pretty cool looking. Uh, okay, over at DC, and again, remember I went and talked about all these books on yesterday's episode. There's a hardcover of American Vampire 1976. Didn't necessarily talk about that one, but it is out. I did talk about Arkham City, The Order of the World, number two. Also, Batman number 116. Batman Noel hardcover. I've talked about that previously on a Christmas special by Lee Bermejo, one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. Absolutely fantastic, gorgeous art. If you don't have it, highly recommend that. Uh, we have Batman Reptilian, number five of six from Garth Ennis and Liam Sharp. Batman Superman Authority Special, number one. Crush and Lobo, number six of eight. The debut of Dark Knights of Steel. It's a 12-issue mini with Yasmin Put uh, Putri Art with uh, Tom Taylor writing a mashup of the DC Universe slash Game of Thrones slash Arthurian legend. So that was a pretty interesting start. Uh, we have DC Horror Presents Soul Plumber number two of six, Human Target number one of 12, which I think I talked about as my book of the week at the beginning of this uh, episode, 12-issue mini, Greg Smallwood on art, almost like channeling Mad Men. Uh, it's just, it, it's so charming and, and just fantastic artwork written by Tom King. Definitely recommend that. Icon and Rocket season one, number four of six. Uh, Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, number six of six. Brandon Easton giving us the quintessential Shiloh Norman Mr. Miracle series. If anybody ever wants to know anything about Shiloh Norman from now till the end of time, I will point them to that series. It was fantastic. Uh, another milestone book, Static, season one, number four of six. 
from Vida Ayala. Great, great book. Wonderful family relationship for the Hawkins in that one. Love it. Uh, Superman number 78 from Robert Venditti, number three of six. That one was uh, has some surprise appearances that you wouldn't necessarily expect. We have the penultimate issue of Swamp Thing with number nine of 10 from Rom V. Uh, Teen Titans Academy, number seven, with art by Rafa Sandoval. Tim Sheridan is the writer. Uh, let's see, over at Image, in addition to the books that I already talked about, we have Firepower by uh, Robert Kirkman and Chris Somney, number 17. We have Inkblot, number 13, by Emma Kubert and Rusty Glad. Uh, Magic Order, which is a, a title from uh, Mark Miller. This is the second volume, number one. Uh, and I think, oh, uh, also Walking Dead, number 26, Walking Dead Deluxe, which is basically the same as the Walking Dead 26 originally, but this time with color. Uh, okay, over at Marvel, books I didn't talk about, Amazing Fantasy number four of five. We've got uh, Star Wars number 18, Star Wars Bounty Hunters number 17. Uh, Strange Academy presents Death of Doctor Strange number one, which I didn't get a chance to read, but can, continues right after, uh, continues the story right after what was left off with uh, Strange uh, or the Avengers presents Death of Doctor Strange, which I did talk about the next part of the story is the, the strange Academy crossover. I haven't had a chance to read that yet. Uh, and then X-Men legends number eight is also out today. Uh, over at Titan comics, we have blade runner 2029 number one. And then there's a, a Marvel's the Falcon and the winter soldier, the official Marvel studios collectors edition soft cover. So if you're a big fan of that show, you might want to check that out. Uh, over at Vault, Blue Flame, number five, from writer Christopher Cantwell is out today. Haven't had a chance to read that yet, but definitely looking forward to it. So uh, those are some other books that you might want to be on lookout for when you head to your comic shop today. Hopefully all the books I talked about are going to be there and these other books that I mentioned are going to be there. But again, just be patient. Talk to your retailer. Some books are being delayed in printing. Some are being delayed in shipping with all the kind of supply chain issues that are going on right now. So um, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Really appreciate you listening as always, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.